Hi, welcome to another Pharmacy in Practice podcast. Um, another um, mental health series themed podcast today, and we've got a specialist mental health pharmacist on. Would you Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, and um, my name's um, Dolly Sood. I'm a specialist mental health pharmacist currently working at Leicester Partnership NHS Trust um, and also doing a PhD with Aston University. Cool. Um, lovely to talk to you, Dolly. Um, so where where are you beaming in from today? Is it is it Leicester you're you're calling in yeah. from or? Yes, yeah. Cool. Um and you're um yeah, we're gonna come on to talk about I'm really interested to talk about your your PhD work and stuff like that. Um but we'll come we'll come on to that in a second or two. But so so what's 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 your background then? Could you give a like a bit of a potted history of your career so far? Okay, so I um finished my pharmacy degree in 1996 uh, actually in Leicester um, and then went on to do um, a residency in Manchester um, and then spent some time um, actually working across the acute hospitals in Leicestershire and also Derby and spent then some time working in GP practices across Nuneaton, Birmingham and Derby um as well as doing some work for de montford university as a distance learning tutor um then uh went back into hospital working in nuneaton um and um got a role as a mental health pharmacist around uh well coming up to 12 years now um and since then been working um in this mental health trust and not look back um i've been very lucky to have lots of opportunities whilst working at the trust so i spent a year on comment working as the interface pharmacist um, and leading on the uh, national sequin for monitoring physical health in mental health and now well not now but three years ago got offered an opportunity to apply for some funding to do a phd which i'm in my third year of right now as well as working Excellent, cool. And what what was your thinking about um, becoming a mental health pharmacist? Was that was that uh, pretty much like my career, but by, by happening by accident, or 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 did you always want to do that? Um, I think specifically with regard to my interest in mental health, um, I would say I've always had an interest in mental health and mental ill health and treatment of care, mental health. Um, Partly that's because when I was quite young, I witnessed firsthand the impact of untreated mental illness and how that can impact on family life and um, sort of wider community. Um, and uh, when I started practicing, practicing as a pharmacist in the background, there was always that kind of pull or the call. But I spent quite the first half of my career, if we kind of split it into two bits, working in um, general medicine, acute medicine across GP practices. Um, and then I was lucky enough to actually apply for a job in, in Leicester, the Leicester Partnership NHS Trust and I've been there ever since and I love my job. I do wake up in the morning and think, yep, yeah, I want to go to work and I do that. It's not my even on a Monday morning. Um, I actually kind of think, yeah, I really do love my job. So since working there, I've uh, mainly done quite a lot of clinical work, working on the wards and obviously the core duties. Um, and more recently worked on on the national secret. And I think really for me, it's more about using my knowledge and expertise to 
better care and, and make a difference for patients, obviously with regards to medicines, but about the wider implications of mental health and mental ill health. Cool. You've kind of you've kind of answered my next question. Um, so you're 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 well ahead of the game. But what do you think a pharmacist brings to that space? Um, I would say that in particular, I've um, probably when I first started, one thing that was acutely aware of was that my knowledge, my pharmacological knowledge of medicines, was very very useful on wards in terms of particularly maybe choosing medicines for patients more so because of the side effect profiles of drugs and that actually generally across the board efficacies don't differ hugely what makes a difference is knowing the side effects and the pharmacology side effects and interactions that was really when i first started working there i was like wow okay probably use more of my pharma pharmacology knowledge working in mental health than i have done in any other speciality but also then moving on and working there for a bit longer, it's more about how um, the most valuable medicines are the ones that patients don't take and how we are very well placed to advise service users, carers and provide support for um, effectiveness of medicines, but taking them and helping support taking them in a way that will make a difference for them, but also choosing medications as well. So one thing I think we should spend more time doing and I have done when the opportunity has arisen is sitting down with services and carers and asking them what what side effects will be okay and which ones definitely won't and that's not to say that that you know the, the no there's no medicine as we all know that isn't side effect free but maybe just thinking about which ones might be better but also again the understanding that medicines aren't the be all and end all in mental health and that other care, um, occupational therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy and the wider understanding of the social implications of how, those, how individuals live and how it fits into their lifestyle is more important. So in certain other areas of medicine specialities, medicine plays a bigger, drugs play a bigger role, but in mental health that's not the case, but that we still have a role. It's just we've got to fit that in around whatever else is going on in everybody's lives. So there's, there's that kind of wider thinking about how medicines will fit into everyday lives of individuals, which kind of gives its own challenges. Um, and I think I've certainly developed more skills in empathy and inductive and deductive reasoning as a result of working in mental health. Very good, very good. I mean, my, my our backgrounds are, we're actually, we're quite different to be honest. So my, my background recently is working in GP practice for a few years and before that, uh, working in community pharmacies. So I suppose the next question is a wee bit about about community pharmacies. I quite enjoyed, well, I, I really enjoyed working in community pharmacy, but one of the things I quite enjoyed was was around some of the simple pharmacology of um, mental health drugs, particularly antidepressants. I think my own view is that community pharmacists can add um, a huge amount of value there, especially when you know, because you've got really good relationships with your your patients or customers in the community, and um, a little bit of advice at the right time, deployed in the right way, can make a big difference. I'm thinking of some really good conversations we used to have about, um, you know, if someone was withdrawing from a, a say an SSRI, and just the knowledge of those those long half lives and 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 how the patient is likely to react to the withdrawal process and stuff was really, really helped um, a lot of patients, I think. But so on that note and in that in that sort of vein, what 
what would you as a secondary care mental health, a specialist mental health pharmacist expect from your community colleagues in terms of a contribution to mental health pharmacy? I think certainly, I mean, a lot of this has come out of the research that I've done. So I'm, I've never practiced in community pharmacy. I did a little bit of work as an undergraduate when I worked with Boots, but I can't sort of stand here, sit here and kind of say that I know the ins and outs of everyday practice. But what I will say certainly from what service users and carers have spoken to me about without preempting too many of my findings is that one thing that's really important is, as you mentioned, that relationship. And a lot of what will come out or that services and patients will um, extract from community pharmacy and services community pharmacy is based on that very rich relationship that we have to plant those seeds, whether it's secondary care, primary care, is that pharmacists need to interact with patients, plant the seeds that actually this is what pharmacy can do, this is what we can offer you, um, and establishing those good relationships so that they will use that as a foundation for seeking support and certainly seeking care from us. And it's kind of what I call more is more. If they've had um, some very good interactions with pharmacists, they're more likely to turn to us in those times of need and certainly seek advice and, and um, our knowledge and expertise in supporting them. Um, but also, um they they will then obviously feel comfortable in asking for the advice as you say that relationship a lot of the patients are supposed to have good relationships with their community pharmacists and they will regularly go and see the same pharmacist and even know them by first first name basis um so we community pharmacists might be the first to pick up that they might have stopped taking their medication or is acting out of character exactly um, that's that's another uh, aspect that i was thinking of actually yeah 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 and also providing advice on on side effects and management one thing that i did do um when i was doing my uh pre-registration training at Hay in liverpool we um spent some time in community pharmacy and there was one particular community pharmacist who used to do supervised consumption now at that time given my complete naivety I was a little bit apprehensive but what was really notable was the absolute fantastic relationship that this particular pharmacist had with every single one of those uh, individuals who came into the pharmacy and for whom he supervised consumption and I was completely blown away by that and I thought actually and, and again because of my naivety and not having had that kind of witnessed that before I thought this is absolutely brilliant. It is okay. And that apprehensiveness quickly disappeared. So that was quite significant for me in just understanding that actually, again, it's about that face-to-face -face contact. Um, and obviously there is there is quite a lot of work that Hayley Gorton's done looking at the role of community pharmacy and suicide prevention as well. Um, and she looked at the pharmacopedology of suicide and self-harm. So actually, we know that community pharmacy teams can raise awareness and help prevent suicide and self-harm. So I think there's a lot of things, um, as well as kind of looking at consumption or frequency of how often people buy certain medications over the counter. Um, obviously, that would help in kind of helping prevent poisoning by accident or suicide, reminding on maximum doses and things like that. So um, there's lots of areas that community pharmacy can provide support on and mm. I think that certainly working collaboratively across primary secondary care would be something that we should definitely be doing in the future with specialist mental pharmacists and community pharmacists teams working together. Mm. 
really good answer. Yeah, I totally agree with you. One of the things I've learned loads since I've been in, in general practice, but one of the big things I've learned um, is the importance of taking a good history, hmm. you know, and, and for so many conditions. Um, I said, well, I should start that again. I suppose my naive approach to the consultation was, you know, uh, I, I assumed before I was in general practice that, that that's all about the you know the clinical testing and clinical examination. But of course, clinical tests that you request and, and examinations and stuff are really just to confirm that or deny the history. And mm -hmm. the point of that is that when you transplant that thinking into community pharmacy and when you overlay mental health issues on top of that, I think what community pharmacists are really good at is spotting patterns. Yeah. And it's absolutely because of that face-to-face um element i do worry i do really worry about the social capital that will be lost if the community pharmacy network is degraded and and i think especially i feel really strongly about this i think especially in the in the field of of mental health mm. um one of the things community pharmacists and 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 i'm my bad for this as well one of the things we're rubbish at is recording what we do but honestly, if I had a pound for every little supportive or checking in conversation I had with mm. with a patient that I knew that had a, a mental health um, issue, you, you'd be a millionaire, you know. And I do wonder with these, um, I'm a big advocate like yourself of technology, but I do wonder about these distant selling pharmacies, you know, mm. you, you know, that social capital is just, it just disappears. And a lot of what you were saying as a secondary care pharmacist, I find really interesting to transpose your thinking there onto the, onto what's happening at the co-facing community. And actually, we're we're all going in the same direction. Mm. Um, so I, I enjoyed your yeah, yeah. I completely agree with you. I think that we should use technology to facilitate greater interaction on a face to face. And what you've just said there really echoes with lots of the services. And 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 literally, it's been part of the community. Um, easy to go into part of my village um, I would go to them rather than go for the GP because I can just walk in and I don't have to make an appointment and they know me it's these sorts of comments that mm -hmm. really hone in that actually it is part they are considered part of the community and I completely agree with you about degrading and one of the things about any area of practice of pharmacy there's a lot that we do that is goodwill uh, as goodwill as you as kind of business as usual but um the documentation of what we do is so difficult because there's a lot of quality there and you can't quantify every single conversation that you have and the impact that it's going to have um it, it is a, a hub um but we have those skills to have those conversations with patients and service users and one thing that's also very interesting that's come out is with the research that I've done is the fact that in some ways community pharmacists actually may be seen by individuals who have severe mental illness as somebody who is actually somebody who's in a point of neutrality not attached to the mental health team but actually an advocate for talking about medicines which oh, is a really, yeah and that's a really interesting point that I never thought of you know, <laughs> it's interesting like that again another thing I've learned since I've been in general practice probably is is around health seeking behaviours and how, what makes a patient decide to come and see you, and that 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 ties into mm -hmm. what you've just said because, you know, you 
I suppose when you're when you're a doctor, you're a gatekeeper to lots of services or or access to you know gatekeeper to drugs, as it were, as well. And that's really interesting that community pharmacists. One of the advantages could actually be that they're seen as neutral. I've never thought of that before, actually. Yeah, and that's that's something that's really interesting. So this is this is the these are the golden nuggets of doing research that you think, oh, okay, I never thought about it like that before. And that's the wonderful thing, actually. I think that's really kind of come out that apart from obviously the whole imposter syndrome and kind of doing my research like wow the other thing that is true is that I don't tell the service users and wherever possible anybody that I'm interviewing that I'm a pharmacist because I want them to be completely open about everything that they're saying about pharmacy um, mm-hmm. and that's been a very good position to be open to have those those conversations which is it's much better and that was one of my supervisors Eleanor Bradley who's a health psychologist a professor of psychology from University of Worcester who said to me don't tell them that you're a pharmacist and the conversations that we have are really gritty and raw and open and honest which is fantastic. Yes. I can't, I'm really looking forward to reading your reading your papers. Um, so listen, we better get on to this research then, hadn't we? Yeah. Um, we better. It's the elephant in the room. Let's talk about it. So what, what's what's it all about? And it, well, we 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 talked briefly um, before we came on the podcast. You introduced me um, to to what it was all about, but maybe maybe you might want to sort of just share the the title and and the why how how you how you stumbled upon that topic really. That's a lovely question. Yes. Okay. So, um, the title of my uh, research, my PhD research, is um, the role of pharmacy in supporting physical health for individuals who have severe mental illness. Um, and pretty much since I was quite young, my dad's got a PhD, so I remember looking at his thesis sitting in his room, going, "Oh, <laughs> I remember saying no pressure, no pressure." <laughs> that I'll put mine next to yours and he looked at me blankly and I thought oh and it's kind of come up once or twice and I thought okay I'll see I'll see and and I was at the point where I thought actually uh, I'm kind of ready for the next chapter in my career I've been so lucky so far so um my uh, hospital trust um put call out for funding now prior to this call for funding I heard had been leading on the national sequin for um, my trust, which is basically a quality improvement program where NHS trusts get, sounds a bit crude, ordered money for reaching certain targets. And this particular one was about improving physical health care for individuals with severe mental illness. So really we're talking about metabolic disease, um, cardiometabolic risk like smoking, metabolic syndrome and those sorts of things, really cardiovascular disease, because that's the biggest killer. And um, as we all know, these guidelines for metabolic monitoring have been around for more than 20 years. And we're still, in, unfortunately, in a position where these individuals still are losing up to 20 years of life down to cardiovascular disease, which is pretty terrible, really. And uh, at that time, the National Audit Schizophrenia showed that only 24% of these individuals were getting the basic NHS health check, which is atrocious. So um, in my hospital, um, pharmacy were tasked with kind of leading on this project and I did that for a period of five years but became acutely aware that one thing that was missing from what we were doing was actually talking to service users and carers about what their feeling was and what they wanted. That's where the idea for doing my research project came. The funding came up within my NHS trust which was a research capacity building award. Um, I applied for it 
um, and actually at the same time thought about a supervisor and again in a bit of an upside down way um, I actually went and searched for a supervisor so I had a few people in mind already who were prominent in mental health pharmacy I wanted somebody who'd already practiced in mental health pharmacy so kind of understood the practice based aspect of my research and um, I spoke to Dr Ian Maidman at Aston and it kind of made sense and it for me was a, was a good fit um, and he was fantastic he supported my application even before me actually getting a place at Aston did a mock interview put a lot of time and effort into me who at that time I didn't even have a place at the university so I was quite grateful for that I was very lucky yeah yeah it was absolutely brilliant I can't I just can't fault the amount of support that I got um, and then um, were, was lucky enough to get through to the next stage and actually got the funding for the PhD. Um, the implication of that, of course, is that the, everything in terms of, so we're going to talk finances now. Again, sorry, this is going to get a bit like, let's talk well, finance. It's, it's absolutely fine because that, like, that is the reality of doing a PhD. You know, it doesn't, these things don't happen in fresh air. So no, no, it's good. It's no. interesting to hear that. Yeah, I did spend some time just before that kind of scrimping and saving but thinking okay if this does happen I'm going to have to obviously cut my hours down because I'm not prepared to it full time and do a PhD as well because I know some people who are much more resilient than me might do that but I wasn't prepared to do that so knowing that obviously I would have to think about the financial application um, but um, I was also then very lucky to be awarded a 50th anniversary Aston University prize studentship which matched the funding from the university so again that was just completely out of the blue and have been very lucky to be in receipt of that money as well as obviously the funding from the trust so essentially the funding that I got covers all of my PhD costs um, whilst I'm doing my PhD so I don't I don't have to pay for any tuition fees or kind of costs for conferences and things like that. So I'm now in the third year. Um, it's a three phase project. So I did a literature review. Um, I'm in the second phase where I'm actually doing the field work just at the end of that phase and now actually analyzing the data and thinking about the kind of final phase of actually structuring the thesis and presenting the uh, findings from the interviews that I've done with patients, service users, community pharmacists and care professionals. Fantastic. I mean, we were speaking, again, we were speaking a little bit before we came on about um, how uh, how we both exercise and how, I've, to be honest, I find exercise um, so useful in my life. Um, recently, you know, especially, I mean, I've gone self-employed recently and you know the rough and tumble of of your career and having to look after your family and all the rest but it, mm -hmm. these things you know everyone has their own personal stresses but the uh, the common denominator that i've found um is is certainly exercise in the form of running and other things but it's really i mean it, it, it has absolutely changed my life in terms of how well i feel um mm. and um it would, I know we were speaking before, but it would be nice if the narrative around mental health was was a little bit more like the healthy eating agenda, you know, a bit, a bit more about um, investing in your mental health. Because I feel that's personally what, what I'm doing. And, and I'm one of the lucky ones that that 
that kind of works. Um, I do recognise that there's lots of people out there that 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 doesn't work for, and that's that's unfortunate. But for that reason, I was really intrigued to speak to you, and and I obviously, I don't want to preempt your your earth-shattering results. Um, <laughs> that'll be published, you know, globally and all the rest of it. Well, but, um, You're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm building that up here. I know. You really are. I know. <laughs> like the opposite of expectation management. Wow. Um, pressure <laughs> exactly uh, but are you able to share sort of um any tidbits or any kind of yeah early findings I, without without kind of sort of giving the game away if you whatever you're comfortable yeah. with yeah, yeah yeah that's fine and i think just before i do that i think one of the things about um doing research is um i mentioned imposter syndrome I have toyed with the idea of doing research for quite some time. And as I said, I feel quite humbled and blessed to have got the funding when I did and that it was my first application. I know people spend years trying to get funding and it can be a really long trek in some ways, almost a longer, a longer and harder trek than it is actually doing the PhD itself. Um, and that happened for me quite quickly. Um, and really a lot of that was about us trying to raise the uh, game in terms of research within my specific trust. So three of us got picked as recipients of that bursary and I was very lucky to be to be one of them um, and would hope to take that forward but as a pharmacist doing research it's um, a very uh, unique experience in the sense that certainly when I was doing my degree and during my pre-reg year and so on it's not something that is almost kind of par for the course two of my brothers are doctors and one of them is married to a doctor and in medicine and the doc medics I've spoken to it's very much a kind of given or inherent part of their profession that they will undertake research in some way yeah. um I've always had that interest and I don't know if it's kind of a family thing like so my dad's got a PhD and two of my brother's I've done PhDs as well, so I don't know oh if it's... Oh my goodness, a what a successful family, oh my goodness, well, I feel so intimidated. <laughs> please don't. I mean, I've always been someone who's had to work very, very hard to get to get what I've got in the sense that I wouldn't say I'm kind of, you know, clever as such, I just graft. I am a grafter and I've always had to graft, but I suppose the kind of upside of that is that you really appreciate your rewards. Um, but I think certainly um, the pathways for pharmacists doing research aren't necessarily as well trodden as they are for other professions and the opportunities mm. to get funding for research aren't as open as they are but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it and obviously our value in research is huge because we are notorious when it comes to paying attention to detail we are notorious when it comes to making sure that all our paperwork you know that the i's are dotted and the t's are crossed and everything yeah and, and that those skills lend themselves very well to, to doing research with my particular research I deliberately chose to do qualitative research although I'm a kind of quantitative person by background because I wanted to develop a new skill set and see what it would bring to my uh, skill set but also how it would open up the actual work that I'm doing um, and certainly in terms of the findings that the literature review has uh, it's actually gone for publication so we're just waiting for feedback from that so we're waiting to see if somebody will publish it so again that's something that's par for the course you may get rejected from lots of different journals and it's about again finding the right fit um, but that did show that pharmacists can have an impact and interestingly based on something we were saying before um, in terms of implementing interventions to improve physical health checks for people with severe mental illness the most effective 
study interventions that we found were those that involved face-to-face -face contact between pharmacists and teams or pharmacists and patients. So that was really significant. Um, not much work had been done looking at people's opinions of pharmacy doing this or what other professions thought of pharmacy. That's where one of the one of the gaps was, hence the need for my particular research. So the research study itself is um, basically semi-structured interviews with um, service users, in other words, patients with swimmer illness, um, their carers. So I'm doing what we call dyad research. So what that means is I'm recruiting the patient, but I'm recruiting their carer. And what was interesting is there's not a lot of dyad research that goes on in mental health. There is in palliative care. So you recruit the patient and you, you through the patient, you recruit their carer so you can compare and contrast what they've said rather than uh, recruiting any carers. Um, community pharmacists, um, hospital pharmacists, practice pharmacists and care professionals. So that would include OTs, physios, social workers, CPNs and GPs. So far we have recruited and I've just done my 54th interview this morning. Goodness me. Yes. Um, so I'm coming to the end of the recruitment because I've recruited enough individual small groups. The group that was the most difficult to recruit from, and I'm sorry to say this, Jonathan, was the community pharmacist. Oh no, no. <laughs> and I'm sorry, and I'm sure it's an issue of pressure and time, but mm. um, successfully managed to recruit service users and carers with any difficulty whatsoever. Um, I managed to get um, CPNs, community psychiatric nurses, um, and one thing that's really struck me about doing research is the immense amount of support that I've had from outside my department. So um, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name, but there's a particular doctor in my trust who has helped me recruit quite a lot of GPs. Chris Roberts, thank you. And <laughs> other, uh, yeah, I know, he's going to hate that. And um, there's um, uh, one of the community psychiatric nurses, Lynn, who works in our certified outreach team. They've been really, really, really helpful in supporting recruitment. And that's been one of the really things that's cut through my research is the networking and the opening up to other professional relationships outside of my own department. So that's been great. Brilliant. Um, in terms of findings, so mm. um, a lot of this has, has, has raised issues about people's opinions or experiences of pharmacy and also um, about how people view pharmacy and what they do and don't know about what pharmacy does. Um, pharmacy presence, physical presence, um, and whether people would access pharmacy and for extra things and whether it's just purely and this is not what I'm saying it is, but is it just a transactional relationship where you go in and you pick up your meds and you leave, or is it more than that? And it has raised a lot of issues about where people sit on that spectrum of, I know my pharmacist by first name basis, or I had a very good experience with a pharmacist that works in an outpatient team, to I just go in there and pick up my meds once a month and that's it. What else do I need? So it's quite a spectrum of, of, of um, experiences, yeah. I think it's, it's a really, there's so much in that, uh, what you've just said, all really interested. I think my pulse quickened when you mentioned 52 interviews because, you know, kinda, well, I'm, kinda, I'm kinda interviewing folk for a living now really. And, um, How many have you, know, you done? Well, I, I don't transcribe them, you see. I mean, my, my project at uni was a qualitative research project. Yeah. Um, we looked at the, the, we interviewed the first 
no, sorry, the second cohort of supplementary prescribers ever in the mm. UK. So that, that was quite oh, interesting. Wow. That was, my, I think, that was my, where my interest in prescribing sort of kicked off. Um, but anyway, the the reason my pulse quickened was because the the to transcribe that that amount. I mean, fifty two interviews. Do you do you have to type them out, or do you do you do so, you use software? I'm very lucky because I have somebody who does my transcribing for me. So all of the interview, um, I record all the interviews and then um, they're digitally encrypted. Um, I remove any details on there that would make the participant identifiable. And then um, I have um, a lovely lady who um, actually, I send her the digital file and she transcribes it and sends me back the um, the the transcript but as a matter of course to get to get to do obviously one of the things about doing a PhD or any research project is it's training to do research mm. so if you say to somebody I'm doing a PhD they go wow that's amazing well actually <laughs> you learn by doing it's a very practical process you can't read a book and go and do research you need to just do it throw yourself in and just see what happens and be kind of ready to kind of take on different challenges. So for me, it's quite, it's been quite a practical process. People think it's very academic. It's very practical because you learn by doing. Cool. Um, so I did do some of the transcription myself. Um, one of the things about qualitative research is you have to be familiar with your data, but because I did the interviews myself face to face, um, then um, I, I was already, I am already familiar with my data, but just for the purpose of actually practicing transcribing, I did, because I can touch type, I did some of the transcribing myself of a couple of the interviews. Right. And PhDs, basically what the whole point is, is that you're exposing yourself to every single aspect of the research process. So that mm -hmm. if you want to then go on to do more research, you might be part of a bigger research team where you might be focusing on maybe just the recruitment or maybe just the ethics or the data processing, but the PhD means that you end up doing every single component of a research project. So it's training for research. Doesn't mean it's not hard and it's not a long haul, it's not a slog, but you are training in all aspects of research. And that's what the point is about doing a PhD. It's not this massive, amazing, like you've not won when you when you finished it, you've just, you, you now can do some research. That's what it means. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I I just remember. I think I can't remember how many interviews we did. Not anywhere near what you've what you've done, but I, I wouldn't like to say how many. But I do remember how many how many words I transcribed. It's etched in my brain. Ninety six and a half thousand words. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then of course you're probably going through that same process where you you pull out the themes, don't you, and and sort of see if there's common themes through the narrative and through the data, isn't that? from memory that I'm probably vastly oversimplifying uh, and insulting all qualitative researchers that are out there but that, that that's my memory of qualitative research anyway. Yes very important actually so um, to kind of uh, take a little bit away um, the the main kind of aspect is uh, thematic analysis so mm -hmm. Brown and Clark excellent fantastic website on uh, on their work they talk about generating themes um you nearly hit the kind of do not say this of like themes emerged is is the taboo you should never say that so you, you okay. generate because yeah you know you were nearly there so but it, one of the things that's hugely hugely important is that um and this is where you kind of feel like you have to develop your skills is that um doing thematic analysis um, you are implicit in generating the data. So just by physically interviewing somebody, you are, um, the relationship 
uh, for me as a researcher with that person, I have obviously a list of open-ended questions, but each interview is different. So there may be things that they talk about and I will actually, let's just talk about this. And actually I want to talk about this happened to me when I was an inpatient and tell me about this. So everybody's life journey, particularly mental health and particularly with the complex issues of drug therapy is very different. Um, it's my job as a qualitative researcher then to um, basically, um, based on my own knowledge and experience as a pharmacist, based on my understanding of mental health, based on my interest in this particular area, to be responsible for that data, do it justice, give voice to what is particularly important. So generating themes, I'm just as much involved in that as the person who did the interview with me. And that's a little bit scary, I will tell you but it's also very exciting at the same time. Good so stuff. that's the kind of bit that I'm learning as, as a pharmacist. I have to kind of put aside some of those kind of very strict, rigid skills that we have and kind of go, and I'm gonna be open and actually impress my experience, my understanding, my personality, my passion for caring for individuals who have SMI and, the, and obviously supporting them into generating the themes for what i'm going to say about what i found do you know what i love i love speaking to folk like you dolly because you are clearly completely enthusiastic and you're completely immersed in this process <laughs> i don't i actually don't think we see enough of that or hear enough of that type of narrative in in our profession you know like no. there is there is um pleasure and enjoyment in, in doing work like this and that you're just yes you just articulated that the, the other thing I was going to say about what you said was which I found really interesting was um, if we step back from your research in mental health I think I find it fascinating that you're actually asking a lot of the same questions that that are being asked in the wider sort of pharmacy um, arena really you know mm. you know what what is a pharmacist what what's mm -hmm. our job what's what's the common denominator sort of feature that makes us a pharmacist what makes you feel like a pharmacist and also it, you know the interaction we have with um service users or or, or patients mm. or or customers what what's the nature of that are, is it transactional you know are we i think there's an intellectual conversation to have about about where pharmaceutical care fits and all of that but also you know are we willing to step away from the SOP or are we willing to go beyond the SOP and, and start operating as autonomous practitioners? I think is the SOP is important just mm. in the same way that um, we have to protect our core services, we have to protect excellence in the core services, medicine supply, being on point with um, even the day-to-day -day stuff of stock checks and fridges and making sure that we do everything on point as far as standards go for dispensing and the services that we provide. However, we can't then take away from the rich depth of clinical interaction that we have with our service users and patients um, and their carers as well and other healthcare professionals. You can't affect change um, by being at a distance. You have to be face to face, you have to be there, you have to be on the team. And one thing that certainly when I did my um, training at Older Hay Children's and then when I worked in Manchester as a resident and all the way throughout my career, it is so important to be, particularly, I mean, as I said, I'm talking about a secondary care point of view, on the ward with the team. The number of times I've sat in a ward office prior to ward round 
and heard people have conversations, medicines related conversations and gone, hang on a minute. Whoa, that's not, that's the, yes. And a lot of it is around medicines or I've been on a ward and noticed somebody's blood results and somebody signed this off, I better just check. So there's all those things that are, happen whilst you're there just by being on the ward um, and the value that it adds the 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 skill set and the knowledge that we have that, that we bring to the team uh, i've worked with some fantastic consultants where you are seen as part of the team they ask your opinion before making a conclusion about the next steps for patient care um, our knowledge of drug, drug interactions knowledge of how clozapine works interactions with smoking all those things that we have that we can bring to the team that we can educate our team members about but also share experience and share knowledge it's it's just that's where it's at for me it's really interacting with the team and picking up on those things that you go literally remember turning around sitting in 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 you in know in a ward office with nurses behind me talking about something they obviously didn't know who was there because they wouldn't have been and i'm going no that's not what was supposed to have happened and going oh you're a pharmacist and it was wonderful and i actually just think it's it's absolutely brilliant but that's really for me where we where we can affect change is is being there so core services and sops brilliant great we have to do that we must do it. it's part of what we've done but face-to-face -face contact like you say if we lose it it will be a slant on our profession and our professionalism yeah i'm, I'm with you on that i um, totally agree there so just just to just to we're almost finished just to finish off um Got to get a plug in for the College of Mental Health Pharmacy. Mm, yes, definitely. We've, we've, we've been, so, so pharmacy and practice, PLC, um, such that it is, i.e. me, <laughs> have been, uh, it's all smoke and mirrors, it's all smoke and mirrors, um, have been supporting the, the College of Mental Health Pharmacy this year. So what what does that, because uh, you're a member of that organisation, so what, what, what does that organisation mean to you? Wow, it means a huge amount, actually. Um, I've worked in general medicine, as I said, so um, I'm aware of the UK CPA. Uh, when I first started practicing as a mental health pharmacist, um, again, I will, I'll keep saying lucky, but I am. Um, I was lucky enough to get funding to do my um, diploma um, in psychiatric pharmacy with Aston University, having already done a, a diploma in practice pharmacy um, with Derby before that. Um, and really wanted to become an accredited member of the college. So essentially, having completed um, my diploma, I then thought about actually becoming an accredited member, which um, essentially means that you have to demonstrate a level of expertise um, in mental health pharmacy. Um, and I had to put together a portfolio which included demonstrating various skills um including things like um doing a review of a clinical paper but also practice based working with working on the wards and and interactions with patients and ward rounds um and then actually doing a viva um which was pretty scary so you submit a portfolio of work um and um you go and do a vibe and then based on that they will give you a full accreditation so i'm able to put the um initials and uh, member of the college of mental health pharmacists at the end of my name um having been through that process then considered as an expert to a point 
what what do you think? Because I'm I'm a bit obsessed with this credentialing process. Mm. So what, what do you think the importance of that is to our profession, and maybe in a broader sense? I think certainly. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not uh, keen on people sort of chasing letters after their names for the sake of chasing for letters after your names. It's got to have value. It's got to have meaning. And if you put those letters after your name, you need to demonstrate that you can do what you said that you can do by putting those letters after your name, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see the point of having letters if, if you can't demonstrate that. But certainly for me, it's a, it's essentially it's a rubber stamp on um, kind of them saying that you have demonstrated these skills and you continue to demonstrate because I have to re-credit every five years as well and that I have demonstrated that level of expertise to a certain point um, and I'm practicing that and it, it gives it opens the door to lots of different opportunities in terms of being involved in um, collaborations for example we did some work for Young Minds and um, supporting other uh, bodies and with medicines related aspects mental health medicines as well um and um just really it's about expertise and and yeah as i said demonstrating that expertise um but also sharing that so one of the other things that it does give me the ability to do if, um is to open up doors for me doing other things and saying look i'm a member of the college as well as the other accreditations and qualifications that i have uh, which has meaning to other people as well. So it is a recognised body. Very good. I'm going to put a link to the, the college's website at the, at the yeah. bottom of that on the, uh, in the show notes, so I'll, I'll do that. But but listen, it's been really, really lovely speaking to you. And I'm going to ask you my final question. This is becoming kind of like a trademark question. Um, <laughs> and I ask it of, of pharmacists that have um maybe got a wee bit more experience so just to finish what's your advice for um newly qualified pharmacists coming into the profession i would say follow your passions and straight stay true to what you believe in in terms of pharmacy practice um i would also say that um if you are interested in working in mental health it's a fantastic career um i've met some amazing people and worked with some amazing people and really impacted on on patient care in a big way but i think sort of if you're ready to push boundaries and demonstrate your abilities both obviously within your own teams but also across the board make sure you always find the opportunities to do that and don't be scared of doing new stuff um i was a little bit apprehensive before i started doing research and now in my third year i don't have any any regrets whatsoever so i would just say that we are a valuable profession we can add a huge amount to make a difference to our patients um and if you have that passion then you can make a difference what a lovely way to finish perfect uh, it's been absolutely brilliant speaking to you um you've um you're so positive you're immersed in what you're doing i just think you're I just think you're brilliant and I look forward to uh, hopefully meeting you in person at some stage quite soon. Yeah, yeah I'd just like to say, John, I really kind of, um, I was a, a bit taken aback when you kind of asked me to do this and I thought, why me? And and I actually really wanted to thank you actually um, for the opportunity of, of, of kind of allowing me to share my journey 
um, allowing me to share kind of my passions with with what I'm doing now. So actually, I should be turning around saying thank you to you because it's a really good platform for me to kind of talk about me. Mm. Well, on. I mean, what my my blogging. No, it's very kind of you to say that. But my my blogging uh, started off being completely self-indulgent. I mean, my first blog was called JonathanLaird.com, so it couldn't have been more about me. To be honest. <laughs> but uh, the the absolute the absolute pleasure and I mean this sincerely is um, oh thank you is is thank is you. being able to speak to folk like you and and actually pharmacy and practice is is really about everyone else it's it's not about me um so you know I've met so many wonderful folk um doing it and I I think everyone deserves deserves a chance to to explain what they're doing especially if you're doing you know your your work is so meaningful you know you're doing original research and. Uh, um, it's just great to have you on. So I will hopefully see you soon and thank you very much. Thank you. You're doing fantastic work, Jonathan. Wonderful. Thank you. Checks in the post. See you soon. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Bye.